Welcome to an enlightening podcast from IslamPodcasts.com. We encourage our listeners to please comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please remind your family and friends to also visit IslamPodcasts.com for engaging discussions on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, Sira, and much more. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to today's episode and show uh, with this new podcast called Liberating Minds. Uh, today's show is going to be a discussion about Sudan and the particular crisis that's been beset, uh, besetting Sudan for the last couple of years. And we've had in the last week uh, or so uh, rising tensions, fighting between different groups. Uh, and interestingly enough, it's been headline news on the BBC in the UK all of last week. Currently, there's a ceasefire, but I think it's an important discussion that we need to have in order to understand what is the correct perspective from a Muslim perspective and also to understand what's occurring on the ground uh, and maybe even, inshallah, what we can do, uh, whether we're living in the UK or other parts of the Muslim world, what we can do in terms of helping the situation with the Muslims of Sudan. As always, inshallah, you, uh, the audience, will have an opportunity to join our show, uh, to raise your questions. If you've got any comments, you can raise those comments as well. Even if you've got contentions, we'd love to have you criticize or disagree with us. Uh, obviously, we'll respond likewise, inshallah, in a nice etiquette, adab type of way. Uh, but yes, you have the opportunity to engage uh, that will come after maybe an hour or so when we first have the discussion with our expert panelists today. And we have today, uh, the first expert that we have is uh, Brother Adnan uh, Khan, who is a uh, you know person who's written many articles, many works, he's written many publications, including Strategic Estimates, where he undertakes political analysis. Uh, and future expectations within certain key areas of the world. Uh, and uh, many of you may already know and have read many of his works and analysis and articles uh, on various political subject matters. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, Adnan. Walaikum assalam wa rahmatullah, Sharif. Jazakallah uh, for that introduction. Alhamdulillah. And we also have Brother Yusuf Hanif, uh, who is actually uh, half Sudanese himself. He was schooled in Sudan, uh, has lived there as well uh, for a, no, a few years. He's here at, uh, currently in the UK. He is currently has family. Uh, he's also been a political activist while living in Sudan and a dawah carrier there and a member of Hizbut Tahrir. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, Sharif. for uh, both of you coming on. Uh, it's, uh, is a topic that's ongoing. So it's a situation that currently is taking place at, as we speak. Now, I understand maybe yesterday or so there was initially uh, an announcement of a ceasefire within Sudan. But for many Muslims in the UK, a lot of these uh, what's occurring abroad, uh, particularly in a place like Sudan, because we don't really have a major Muslim Sudanese community. There are some Sudanese community in in the uk it's not really massive uh, certainly you know where i live and in other parts of the country and so 
you know, a lot of this is, you know, we're hearing about this. We're really unsure in terms of what's going on. So we won't really want to get, uh, you know, some sort of context and clarification, uh, you know, in terms of the situation there and, you know, maybe some sort of future understanding of, you know, what can be done, uh, you know, in the in the future, inshallah, in the current situation to make it better for the Muslims. But Adnan, I wanted to ask you just before, because some people might be thinking, why are we in the UK discussing this issue? Why should we care about this particular issue? Hmm. So that's a good question. Um, we These are our people. These are Muslim brothers and sisters. <clears throat> this is uh, Muslim land, Islamic land. Like we're concerned about the Muslims in Palestine, the oppression in Myanmar, uh, the oppression in Syria, uh, the uh, oppression in Xinjiang in China, we're seeing a conflict here in another African country. So like we're concerned about the Ummah globally, the Sudanese people are part of the Muslim Ummah. They are people. And that's why we should be concerned. Unfortunately, it's another area of the world where there's conflict between Muslims. There's foreign interference. Unfortunately, it's just added to the list of uh, problems we've got. But that's probably something we should get our teeth into, really. You know, what we're seeing in Sudan isn't unique to one country. We've seen it play out in, in a few other countries. Sudan is now the, the latest, uh, unfortunately. That's probably something we can get our teeth into, inshallah. Okay, and Yusuf, you grew up in Sudan. So you have, oh, not grew up, but yeah, you were schooled there. You've lived there for a number of years. You have family there. Um, what is what is Sudan like? Uh, what is its people like? You know, I'm not talking about the specific conflict at this moment, but just outside of conflict, what is it like living or being there uh, in Sudan and its people? Um, Sudan is a very very large country, um, and it's quite diverse in terms of uh, its its makeup. Um, you can go from Places where Arabic is spoken very well, very well, um, and people consider themselves to be Arab. And you go to places where people don't even speak Arabic at all. You can, there's areas where literacy is high. There's places where there's it's just illiterate people can't read, they can't write. Um, it's a, it's a, it's the I think a result of um, a very long and gradual, slow expansion of Islam, mainly through trade and dawah, as opposed to um, Conquest. So it's the, the lines are very blurred between um, the cultures of different people, but you can actually see a difference between them. On a whole, generally speaking, Islam is the dominant deen in, in Sudan. Um, people, generally speaking, are very, um, let's say, calm. Um, they're not very hot headed compared to um, some of our uh, Arab brothers. Um, and Sudanese people are very. Um, they're used to differences, which is uh, perhaps um, something which is a bit different compared to um, some other places, perhaps because of its uh, its uh, its past and the way it's developed. Um, there was a lot of uh, polarization occurring during the revolution, which was very strange, very new, a new kind of reality for the people people weren't even used to. Uh, a lot of, maybe we'll get to it later on, a lot of um, tactics you'll see employed by Western politicians pitting one people against the other, which was, was a very new phenomenon for people, at least in the capital city. But obviously, if you go to the uh, regions where conflict has occurred before, like in the south, like in Darfur, then you'll find a slightly different reality. But on the whole, 
in the major cities, you'll find life there, generally speaking, is very, I'd say, tranquil, but difficult, uh, difficult economically. Um, and the people love Islam. Even people who've come out, uh, like a lot of the leftists came out of the woodwork during the revolution. Um, and they had um, they had their time, uh, a few months. Uh, it looked like uh, they had changed everything, but then um, it became very clear that they are very strange, they're very foreign to the um, sentiments of the people. No, JazakAllah Khair, because I, I used to, when I used to study in London, I used to know a number of brothers from Sudan. Uh, and uh, one thing that you, you found about the Sudanese brothers, mashallah, was that they were very Islamic, very practicing. It's, uh, you know, it, they, you know, like like you mentioned, they loved Islam and they saw themselves very firmly bonded to, to the deen of Islam. Um, Adnan, what I want to understand now, because I think it's really important that before we start talking about ex directly what's been happening the last couple of weeks, we need to have some sort of broad picture about what's going on. Um, so I don't know if you can give me some sort of understanding about the geography, about its population, ethnicities. Maybe Yusuf as well, you maybe can, uh, you know, raise some points regards to that. So at least we've got some sort of understanding, lay of the land about Sudan. Sudan. Yeah. So Sudan is in the northeast of Africa. Uh, on the map, it may look quite small, but it's actually nearly the size of Europe. Sudan uh, as a country. So the northern areas is uh, largely desert, but you see the people are concentrated in the east, in the south, uh, and the center. So you'd find that, so Sudan at the moment, mainland Sudan has a population of about 45 million. If you include the south Sudan, that's another 10 million. So you're looking at about 55 million uh, population. Uh, and Sudan has had oil for a while, it's got about 5 billion in reserves. And on current consumption, that means it will last for about 100 years. Uh, agriculture uh, is a large chunk of the economy. Its biggest export is gold, interesting enough. Uh, so the UAE gets most of its gold from uh, 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 Sudan. Obviously, um, poverty has been a massive issue in this country. Economic mismanagement has been a big problem. But Sudan, like much of our other Muslim countries, doesn't have a shortage of mineral wealth. It has lots of resources. And because of this, and also because of its location where it is, it shares borders with many countries, with Egypt, with Ethiopia, with the Democratic Republic of Congo, with Chad. It's right next to the Red Sea as well. And that's always made Sudan very important. Uh, well, we've actually is... got a map. Uh, let me put, let yeah, me put the map up and yeah. you, can, you can describe it to us so we can visualize it as well. Well, so the important thing you can see there is it, ha it, sh it has a border uh, frontier with the Red Sea. So that's quite an important trade route. I think uh, that area, at least 60-70% of global trade goes from that area. So as a result, that makes Sudan quite important. Uh, it means Sudan potentially can get involved in the Middle East. The Middle East can get involved in Africa via Sudan. And that's some of the reasons why Sudan actually politically has been quite an important player. Uh, well, well, well for, for hundreds of years, not just uh, particularly now. So really what happens in Sudan is important for many, many countries. It's important in the region as important broadly uh, as well. The map you're showing now shows you how regionally Sudan is organized. And we could probably discuss this. Obviously, there's a long history Sudan has. Sudan does consist of many, many different tribes. I think 70% of the population is Muslim. 
and predominantly the Christian tribes are in the south of, of the country. And that's obviously why, well, one of the reasons that led to the separation of South Sudan from uh, mainland uh, Sudan. So, you know, it's a huge country, although you can't really see that from the map. It's in a strategic location. And that's why Sudan's always been involved, really, in Middle East affairs and you know, North Africa and Horn of African affairs uh, over the, the decades and a couple of hundred years. Yeah. So, Yusuf, uh, have you got any thoughts in terms of the actual region? You've you've lived there, you know. Uh, you you sort of seen the lay of the land. We're seeing it from out. Because one thing that's really interesting is that um, in research for this show, and I, I'm you know I think I have very little knowledge of the issue of Sudan. So when somebody mentioned about naval bases in Sudan, I was like, but I thought Sudan's a landlocked country. So you know the image is is that it's in the middle of sort of you know Africa and it's landlocked. So it was really surprising for me when I saw this image and I thought yes it has you know a coastline to the Red Sea and then you obviously go further north and then you have uh, you know Egypt and then you have the Mediterranean you have Europe you have Russia so uh, I don't know what your thoughts are in terms of the geographic location and maybe also the resources. Uh, yeah so Sudan is obviously being on the Red Sea has been a transit route for Hajjaj coming from the west of Africa to uh... Uh, to Mecca, um, and it's it's part of the reason why Sudan's also diverse. A lot of tribes from uh, and peoples from the West, people from Morocco, uh, the house are from Nigeria. People uh, who settled down in Sudan. It's a very diverse country because of that. Um, so it's always been a transit route for Hajj. Um, anyway, but in terms of a major port, that was only developed by the British during the occupation for Sudan. Uh, so before that, you wouldn't have thought about Sudan as actually a stopover in terms, a major stop for trade until the British developed Port Sudan uh, for that, which is why there is um, there is a competition over over the ports there, completely neglected by the current government. So they're more than happy to just sell it off to anyone. Uh, the, the most recent bidders being the Russians. Um, so it is important in terms of that, but I think it's more important historically as a gateway to Africa for <laughs> Islam. Um, and even before the nation state of Sudan, even before the British occupation and the and the colonialism, um, a lot of the, the the tribes that became Muslim they took it upon themselves to spread Islam uh, into this what is now South Sudan, uh, into the what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo, Central African Republic, westwards into um, Chad uh, and into Ethiopia as well, and vice versa. So because it's in between all of these. Um, countries, um, it's been a transit route for the deen itself, and a lot of Dawah movements um, developed there, and they have a very long history. Um, and the, the nation state of Sudan was very much involved in the region, uh, being a very powerful military as well. They misplaced, let's say, their ability to influence tribes, they misplaced their ability to influence their neighbors. Um, in serving foreign affairs, foreign interests, and we can get to that later on. But the Sudanese government has been involved in Chad, has been involved in Libya, um, has been involved in Ethiopia. In the Ethiopian Eritrean War, uh, it kind of tipped balance, arguably, for the Eritreans to um, uh, secede from Ethiopia. And that was just for the sake of America. It wasn't even pretend for anything, to be honest. But uh, it's, 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 its location has made it. Um, involved in everything around us so it's very much connected 
And obviously, we know these borders are are, are really imaginary, placed by by the uh, uh, the colonists before. But um, between this neighbor, Sudan is probably the most powerful, barring Egypt, obviously, um, and it has exerted influence over its uh, over its neighbors. Okay, Jazakallah Khair. Just uh, just want to give uh, salams to the brothers who have given salams in the comments. So Saifuddin Taha, uh, alaikum salam. He mentioned that Jazakallah Khair for the discussion. Very important timing. Jamal Adin also gives salams. Wa alaikum salam. Uh, and uh, Mufti Moinul uh, Abu Hamza, wa alaikum assalam, and Taji, wa alaikum assalam. So, Jazakallah khair for commenting. You can comment also some of your questions, and we'll we'll also read them out. Um, and uh, obviously, there will be opportunity for you to join the live show as well uh, uh, later on, inshallah. So, so yeah. So, I think the point that you've explained is that one has got resources in terms of oil, uh, in terms of gold, but it's extremely strategic as a location it's crossed the water from the middle east it is a sea route to the suez canal mediterranean europe and the west so china would be interested in this russia would be interested in this uh there would be obviously european states would be interested in, in this and obviously america as a superpower would be interested within this region um, as well as the fact that you mentioned yourself that it's been a gateway historically to Africa as well, so uh, it's 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 an important geopolitical strategic position. Regards to that, I think you touched upon it. But um, what what was what's its relationship, or what has its relationship been with the neighbouring countries within the region? Yusuf, um, it depends which period you're talking about now. Uh, so if you go back long term history, if you're going back to the the, the Sultanate of Hunj, for example. Um, they uh, almost ruled the area and uh, and were a major conduit for uh, Dawa movements into the surrounding areas. But um, since the um, so-called independence of Sudan, uh, and I think by now most people in Sudan would agree that um, the, the independence probably was fake um, that we were given. Uh, it's been it's been a relationship more of I, I'd like to describe it as there's political um, figures and parties, and then there's military figures and and regimes, which they would build up a base in the country and then they'll sell themselves abroad. They will look for some sort of backup abroad, and then they would then use the country to. Um, to uh, serve the interests of, uh, of foreign powers. And that's really the crux of what was going on right now in Sudan. Uh, I think I mentioned, like for example, the, the whole push to get Eritrea to split from Ethiopia. Uh, and the Sudanese army had a very big hand um, in, uh, in, let's not say defeating, but this paralyzing the Ethiopian army to allow the um, Eritrean rebels to, uh, to uh, occupy um, Addis, Addis Ababa, capital of Ethiopia, and uh, then they, then they held it. They held it for uh, for a while, just for the American envoys to arrive and take credit for the uh, independence of the uh, New Eritrean country. But this was done by the, by by Sudan. This was done by by the Sudanese army. Well, but why would the Sudanese army want to get involved in separating? They trying to weaken regional competitors, or is it for other reasons? 
No, so this is it's one of those things where looking for foreign backing, they give a lot to the foreigners. And that's the kind of very sick mentality we've had amongst the leaderships in Sudan is they always bend over so much because they're still looking for acceptance or they want something from America or someone else. And even towards the end of Ahmad Rashid's time is the amount of punishments and sanctions the Americans had put on Sudan and they were still they were still looking for them to be given to be forgiven and uh, given a place back which is why they uh, decided to work on uh, IMF prescriptions decided to work on normalization all of this was happening before the revolution by the way but obviously when he, when he went um, and secularists came to power then all that sped up but all this was happening before there's there's this this very sick mentality which I can only explain as being something which has been inherited from the political culture of the colonial period, that this is how politics is done. You need a foreign backer. And to get that, to um, to secure that, they give a lot in return. They give a lot in return. Okay, Jazakallah Khair. And I think that, that sort of segues into the question about what's the West's sort of, you know, uh, impact within Sudan. I don't know, uh, Adnan, if you want to just... If you got any thoughts in terms of, you know, explanations in regards to the history of colonialism within this region? Yes, yeah, so obviously the most famous is when the British came over in the mid to late uh, 1800s. Obviously, Egypt was became their base uh, and that allowed them to spread uh, into uh, Sudan. And obviously, we know there was a whole scramble for Africa by all the different uh, European powers. Really, a lot of the mess we have, not just in Sudan, but across the African continent, is because of the arbitrary borders uh, that, were, that are now there, uh, that were set up by the Europeans. Even actually, you find the way Sudan was created, uh, that always created tension that eventually led to the separation of South Sudan. So the colonists really were there for their own uh, interests. Uh, they were there, and that's why the borders we have now in no way represent the sentiments of the people, or how they've actually lived for uh, generations. Uh, and that's why we still have some of these uh, issues there. What obviously doesn't help is the central government in the case of Sudan has never really dealt with some of the issues it's got with the tribes on the frontier areas. Uh, and that's why we have a scenario today where the South Sudan is a completely separate country. Just to mention, Sharif, you know, 75% of Sudan's oil ended up going with South Sudan because of where the border was drawn. So Yusuf uh, was mentioning here about the army looking for external um, uh, support. It was America who actually pushed the separation of South Sudan. So the central government in Sudan actually gave up 85% of its oil revenues and oil resources by separating the South of Sudan. And that's actually made the economic situation even worse. And partially is what led to the uprising in 2019. And it's why we are where we are really, unfortunately. Right. Um <laughs> so Yusuf, from my understanding, Sudan, as we look at the borders, uh, and many of the African countries as we look at the borders, those borders don't exist. So Sudan, as a state that we look at now, where you've got the western region, Darfur, previously you had South Sudan, which is now separated into a separate country, but it was originally part. This, this, this actual border was something created by the British, is that correct? Uh, yeah, so um, so historically, the name Sudan is just a referral to 
the area between Egypt and Ethiopia, and it extends westwards towards Mali, Mauritania, uh, which is why the, the British colony was called Anglo-Egyptian Sudan because they had, it was a joint administration. But Chad was known as French Sudan at that, at that time. Um, the, what the British did when they occupied um, Egypt and then Sudan afterwards, was that they had this um they applied this policy um from translate so it's like um closed areas i'm just doing a rough translation uh which they administered the south separately to the north as a closed area not allowing much interaction between the north uh, what we call now sudan and what is now south sudan and it was to prevent the if you like permeation of Islam and Arab culture and language uh, to the south because they wanted to split it into three countries, in Egypt, Sudan, and then another one. And they needed to create a new national identity for the south. So they needed to prevent it from becoming mixed in and influenced with the north. Um, so the way this border is right now is the border between Egypt and Sudan is the border that they put administratively between the Egypt they control and the Sudan they control. And are you talking about so? When, are you talking about this the separation? Are you talking about recently? Or are you talking about in the nineteenth century when the British came? In yeah, in the nineteenth century. In the nineteenth uh, century. Yeah, late nineteenth century, um, early twentieth century. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, so basically the the administrative separation between Egypt and South, administrative between in the British colony, is now has become the official border between the two right. countries. And the areas of the South, um, the areas of the South which have become. Uh, South Sudan, this is more in terms of the, the federal states that were drawn up afterwards, so they were just awarded to the South, uh, which is why you have this mix, obviously, in the border regions, a lot of Muslims and Arabs in the South, and a lot of Southerners who are non-Muslim and non-Arabic speaking, still in, in, in the North. Um, and this is more of a recent phenomenon, this is more to do with um, the Nevasha Accords, which happened in 2005, and the civil war that started pretty much with independence, 56 until 2005. Yeah, so so for my understanding is that the actual region itself, when Britain came and they wanted to sort of create borders and call this Sudan, they took various loose tribal associations that existed throughout this region. Some of them were, you know, traditional African religions like the animists. Uh, some of them were Christian, some of them were Arab Muslims. They didn't really have a cohesive connection between all of them. They probably—is it true that they different regions speak different languages as well? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of languages in Sudan. Yeah, many, many languages. So Arabic is is like lingua franca. Um, yeah. In in the north, you could say okay, it's an official language and the majority is spoken. But before the separation, it was more of a lingua franca. You'd speak it to get by, mm. uh, unless you're actually Arab from from like Khartoum or. The major cities like um, something like that then you'd be speaking arabic as your first language otherwise it's a second language for for a lot of people um in sudan and the, the eastern border uh the western border sorry between chad and sudan that's just literally where the british and the french stopped uh, they had the they had the confrontation military confrontation in fashoda uh which is in sudan right now and then they agreed on a border chad goes themselves. to the french sudan goes yeah, to the british and, but obviously, but but you have people on both sides of the border who are the same people. Uh, that's why the 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 again I'm maybe jumping the gun a bit. The RSF, the Rapid Support Force, um, led by Hemeti now, um, they bring a lot of their members from Chad actually, and not from Sudan itself. Um, 
because it's the same tribe. A lot of tribes are on, on, on both sides of the border. And a lot of people, they cross a lot. Uh, so it's it's like a lot, a lot of countries in the Muslim world. It's, uh, its borders are inheritance from colonialism. And with that comes, obviously, border disputes with yeah. Ethiopia and other countries as well. And fragmentation, Adnan, isn't it? It's the case that the British are taking... that. It's not These are not natural states that have grown out like Europe over a millennia where now you've got France and now you've got Germany and now you've got, you know, Spain and Britain and England. It's not over centuries that suddenly they created these, these sort of states. These were superimposed within a very short period of time. And that naturally would create instability because you've got people that just don't recognize this other group of people as being part of their particular society or, or state. Yeah, absolutely. And so what's transpired is you find that there's a struggle to get the seat of government uh, and you see different factions fight it out uh, so they can have all the resources. And this is, in effect, what took place in Sudan. Uh, Sudan was created and all powers were in the central government. So I think I was reading today, Sudan's had the most coups in history since World War II. Uh, in fact, it's just topped uh, Thailand. Thailand had the second largest amount of coups in the country. Um, See, Muslims, some people say Muslims never top any tables. But we do <laughs> that. that. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 on that one. And you're right. When you've drawn the borders, I mean, the borders were drawn on purpose. So uh, no one... The straight lines as well. The straight yeah, lines. Yeah, the straight as well. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's, the, I mean, this, is, this was the strategy in Africa where you know, no one tribe dominates. You split countries amongst different tribes, different factions. So they'll constantly fight it out. And it allows uh, foreign powers then to actually come in to intermediate and solve the problem when they actually create the problem in the, the first place. And, you know, unfortunately, Sudan is now the, the most recent victim of this. Okay. So in essence, what we've got is in the 19th century, prior to the 19th century, this part of the regions are clearly under the authority of the Muslims, clearly under the authority of the Uthmani Khilafah. There may be outlying regions which are, you know, with different tribal groups. The British come in. They sort of occupy parts of, or they occupy Egypt or create some sort of alliance with Egypt and sort of client type state uh, with a governor there. And then they start to treat these regions as colonies, as their colonial powers. And then they administer them in a way where they create and shape out a map of the world uh, or map of Africa and a map for Sudan. And so now you've got these disparate groups of different tribes, different ethnicities, different languages, which are being told, okay, you are Sudan. But at the same time, you have a situation where the British are administering. Can you explain as well, Yusuf, in terms of this, the, the what's known as the Mahdi movement that took place in the 19th century? Yeah, that's kind of necessary to what you're talking about right now. Um, so the... Um, the Just going back a bit to something you said, the time Sudan spent the area called Sudan right now under the direct authority of the Ottoman Khilafah was actually very short. So though Islam came to Sudan early, very early, and the Khilafah of Uthman bin Affan, um, the, the Muslims actually were defeated um, twice by the, uh, the Coptic uh, Nubian kingdoms at that time. Um, so the conquest didn't occur. I mean, what the border between Sudan and Egypt was passed, 
was passing through forget this border so what we call Sudan right now Islam did enter and then it came from around through trade and through uh, through dawah and that took a very long time very long time so it's more like you'd see the wilayah of Egypt part of the Rashidun Khilafah the Umayyads the Abbasids and then there'll be Coptic kingdoms and then beneath that Muslims uh, south of south of the Coptic kingdoms Muslims who again that's that's more through trade and, and, and dawah and then over time those Coptic kingdoms eroded and Islam became dominant deen. And he had some of those sultans we mentioned before, Fonj, for example, and therefore um, developed. Um, and it was only in the 19th century that the wilaya of Egypt um, decided to then conquer, uh, that's how they looked at it, conquer what was south of them and what they were terming at that time, Nuba Kurdufan and Darfur at that time, because that's, if you like, major. Regions, which then the states of the federal Sudan took up the names of of, of these old uh, old regions, um, as well, and that came almost simultaneously with the British occupation of Egypt, almost simultaneously. So it was very short while where you could say it was under direct control of the Khilafah, oh. but it was a majority Muslim nation at that time, and it was because of and that that created, if you like, the reaction known as the Mahdist movement. Which is uh, the the emergence of a leader who claimed to be the Mahdi um, and announced himself Khalifa of Sudan, and he managed he managed, and I think correct me if I'm wrong, Adnan, but I think it's the first time um, in the Muslim world where the foreigner was actually ejected militarily by 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 the people occupied. So uh, the, obviously the Algerians succeeded later on after a very long struggle to keep the French out. Um, and obviously in, in the subcontinent, there was a failed attempt in 1857. But these massive, the first successful movement to actually eject the colonizer militarily, just kicking them out, was done by, by, by the Mahdi, who then ruled Sudan for a few years. And after he had passed away, uh, the British came back. And the British came back um, through, after learning the lessons, which is, if you want to win, if you want to win against the Muslim Umar, generally speaking, is don't go into a head-to-head head, uh, head head, uh, military conflict. You need to play off different people against each other. You need to win some people over, give them, uh, promise them uh, positions, or as in the case with in outside the major cities, in the tribal lands, is that you will be given the um, authority over pastures or areas of grazing um, over other tribes, so long as you obviously um, allow authority and that's how the British run, ran Sudan it was they existed in Khartoum they existed in all the major cities on the Nile where they were building the railway to Cairo and then on the way to Port Sudan because that's the that's the route obviously for taking resources out of the country up to Cairo or towards Port Sudan and um, uh, for the tribal areas they they kind of left the people there to themselves but they they kind of they designated like you're the main tribe here you're on this area and you keep the other tribes in check that's what they were doing and that was carried on um, afterwards. It didn't last long because the first Sudanese government, they tried to create a unified national identity, the first Sudanese government. Um, and it failed for the reason we said earlier. There is no such thing as an actual Sudan because Sudan is very diverse. It's very diverse. Um, and so in Amr al-Bashir's time, he went back to the old British system. He went back to the old British system and that led that exacerbated the problems in the south. That created. So the old, 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 just to reiterate, the old British system was basically favor one tribe, yes, give them the ability to rule over other tribes, 
that obviously creates animosity as we've seen in the past in other countries like Rwanda as an example uh or uh you know they they it creates also maybe a sort of a perception that we're semi-autonomous we might as well call for our own independence anyway so there's different problems that that creates in that type of approach is that would that be correct yourself absolutely and uh, the the system if you like the uh it's very interesting the name of it as well um to just see how contradictory it is to the deen of allah they call it the hakura system now hakura is uh comes from the arab word of ihtikar which is to monopolize um or to control for yourself and it was literally monopolization of pastures which we know in the hadith of muhammad when he says people are part of them three things these things are not privately owned one of them is pastures it should be open for the grazing and different tribes use and they and they migrate during seasonally and all of a sudden they're being told no you can't come here now. and then you have um fighting between uh farmers people who are settled farming and then uh herders who are obviously moving their their animals across who are eating some of that uh obviously farmers produce and um, the British government was happy to have the tribes to sort out amongst themselves so long as they don't bring it to them Khartoum. and our own British government was more than happy to do the same more than happy okay. to do the same and obviously created that created that for the specifically the Darfur issue and then later on could define others yeah so <clears throat> so hopefully inshallah is uh it, i know it's a lot of depth for the audience to go through but it's it's important to understand the context and you know to understand how we got to the situation that we got to and and uh, you know the reality is that you know while learning about sudan you realize that a lot of this is mirrored in other muslim world uh, muslim countries during colonial rule you had certain tribes certain you know groups uh or sects even that were favored over others and it created this sort of monopolization of leadership amongst one group of people instability within the nation all of these types of issues and and i really want to go into that uh, to, to look at in a bit more further detail because obviously 1956 that's when sudan re received its independence from the british but was it real independence um for well, the, the straight answer is no um the, the there's a lot that's been uh written actually recently on um what happened in 56 or 53 54 55 56 uh because it was in 52 that um the the free officers did their coup in egypt and they and the british managed to keep sudan because remember it was one administrative it was one colony and they managed to keep sudan and let um Ahmed Ajib and uh, Abdel Nasser keep Egypt, what is now Egypt, and they kept Sudan. But it was obviously, they still that post-colonial period, they're going to have to let it go like they had to let all the others. So what they did was they 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 established a parliament, they um, they almost kind of trained up um, at least two major political parties. This is the uh, British training. The British, this is yes, the British during, setting during, up the political yeah, all system. Under, all under British supervision. Yeah. And uh, they they got them to uh, to uh, do a referendum, uh, and this is where this this question marks now being raised um, over whether they was tampered with. But it was the referendum was stick with Egypt or independence. That's what it was basically, and independent Sudan because Britain's gonna leave. Do we make an independent Sudan or do we do we stick with Egypt? And um, 
at that time the result was obviously they didn't actually do an actual referendum in asking the people but as in it was a it was a vote in parliament and uh, at that time it was a vote to become independent although they had been around before or i think to, i can't remember exactly but there was it seemed that the majority was actually towards unity at that time and for good reason because sudan was underdeveloped compared to egypt uh, at that time uh, but then the british left once they had those political parties themselves established themselves under the supervision and then they just left slowly keeping obviously the kind of concessions which they had economic concessions and, and privileges which they had that's the main thing for the colonialists isn't it um so so, so they left a... physically they left you know in a direct rule but they didn't leave in terms of the influence they still even that they took, a, they took their time they took their time to leave physically as well the military the british army was still there for for a while um but then a coup happened two years after independence which um uh, we start this whole uh, like I now was saying uh, the highest number of crews, and then you started this uh, downward trajectory of of um, destroying the country, not giving it stability, and flip flopping between different foreign backers because everyone's looking for a foreign backer. Right, right. So Adnan, obviously we've got a situation where the British uh, can't maintain their colonies. Uh, you know, this is post World War Two. There's problems with manpower there's problems in terms of the economy they're having to rebuild their country they're having to now deal with this idea of how do we maintain an empire in a you know post-empire world in essence so they've created these sort of proxy uh you know or neo-colonial states in essence where they control i'm i know i'm cutting out a lot of history because we've got a lot to still go through uh but how did America get involved within this region? Because obviously this is Britain. Because Britain was classic. What they would do was they would train the officers. They would set down the system. They would establish the political parties. They would gift various, you know, lands and resources to people who were, you know, favorable to their interests in order to maintain their political influence within this country. So how is it that America was able to gain some sort of influence within, uh, within Sudan? So there's two ways, really, America's entry uh, came to Sudan and Africa. The first was, um, obviously, after World War II, America started calling for decolonization. It pushed for the French and the British to make their colonies independent. So that's why Britain, in many ways, was forced to leave direct rule and effectively leave a, a class of people in place who it's worked with. So in the, in, in the Middle East, mostly these were the monarchs. So the Gulf states, Saudi, Jordan, Iran, Britain left uh, established monarchies uh, in these particular countries. In the case of Sudan, what they did was the tribe they worked with and the people they educated, they left these uh, people behind. But the difference is Sudan was Sudan really, when it was created as a nation, you've got multiple different tribes who have been fighting each other for a long time. You've got this arbitrary border. So really the country was set up for a level of instability. So this was the first way America came in. The second way America came in was World War, post-World War II was the beginning of the spread of communism. Uh, and America was telling everybody, uh, anyone who feels threatened by the spread of communism, anybody or any ruler who feels they're going to be overthrown, uh, America now is in this Cold War with the Soviet Union, is there to contain communism. So it's prepared to give aid, economic aid and military aid and military support for any nation uh, that's threatened. And in Africa, obviously the Soviet Union had an agenda. 
It wanted to create revolutions across Africa, these countries that were on the receiving end of imperialism. So mainly what you find is over the decades, the Egyptian military was trained by uh, America and a lot of the Sudanese officers went to Egypt to go and get trained up. Uh, and that's how America managed to uh, get influence over this country. And in fact, you've seen the last few years, many captains, quite, you know, the lowest end of the army in places like Mali, Guinea, they've managed to do coups. And literally a year earlier, they were on train, military training programs in America, literally in Washington, in, in Texas. That's really been America's entry. So decolonization, uh, stop the spread of communism. And then you find that America has been training certain militaries, and these militaries have gone on to train other armies uh, in Africa. And that's how America's come in to have influence in this particular country. Uh, the Americas are quite open now. It was them who pushed and orchestrated the separation of South Sudan. It, this is the America's solution that there's too many differences. Uh, central government can't deal with it. Therefore, South Sudan should be separated. Uh, it was America who actually pushed this. The other, the final thing, what interested America in Sudan was um, American geologists knew there was oil in Egypt and a lot of those oil wells went all the way into Sudan. So I think at least in the late 60s, early 70s, American geologists had realized there's oil in Sudan and they wanted American companies really to uh, develop this. Obviously, across the ocean, you had the Middle East. America was more interested in that. But all these things, when you put them together, that's how America's eyes came on this part of uh, Africa. Right, okay. So um, in terms of Omar Bashir, who came into the power in the 1990s, Yusuf, um, some have speculated that this guy, he was, you know, American-backed. But from a Western... See, there's difference. In the Muslim world, when you say such and such ruler is Western-backed, it sounds normal. It sounds natural because they see and experience the reality. But in the in in the West, even amongst Muslims, when you say this person was Western backed, it sounds like a conspiracy theory. Yeah. So mm -hmm. how would you how would you explain that you know Omar Bashir where his loyalties lie? Because on on the one hand, you know, maybe some of the audience members may not realize, but he came in with this fanfare of being supported by Islamist organizations or Islamic organizations, you know, like Ikhwan al-Muslimin headed by Hassan al-Turabi, who was a scholar as well, uh, and others. So I, I don't know how you would explain that. Um, and sort of... Right, right. So, so Turabi wasn't, wasn't a Muslim brother, um, but um, there was, uh, there was a, uh, a coalition uh, the Islamic Front, Jafar Islamiyah, um, and and that coalition built another coalition, Harakat Islamiyah, the Islamic movement. And the Muslim Brotherhood was in an alliance; he was in that coalition, but had left it before Mubashir actually took power. And um, and Turabi, um, he was uh, the prime minister, wasn't he, at one time? Yeah, but then then uh, Bashir used him to plant the power. Then he got rid of him. Okay, right. So, so you basically, in essence, he used the Islamic sentiments within society, within the society to do the coup to get into a position of power and then as soon as he got into a position of power Omar Bashir then removed the you know the Islamic elements within his governments or a lot I mean, some I mean, of okay them. so 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 all right so this question marks over how Islamic um Turabi's movement was themselves right. but in terms of yeah. Islamic sentiments they're not yeah. leftists that's for sure 
But um, he's, he's well known for having some very weird opinions and, and, and going off on. But uh, the, this is what I'm trying to understand Sudan. If you're not Islamic, you're not going to win in the election. Yeah, if you're not Islamic, you're not going to go far. If you don't look Islamic, if you don't sound Islamic, people don't trust you. Uh, and Omar Bashir did a very good job to destroy that. Yeah, but the reason why he was in power for so long and the reason why he sounded Islamic is because he had to. He had to sound Islamic. But when you look at his policies, if you actually, as a as a very cold observer, and just look at what he was doing and his government was doing, there's, there's nothing to do with Islam. But he talked a lot. He sounded the most Islamic by far. More Islamic than, than the Saudi kings, more Islamic than the Pakistani uh, leaders. He sounded the most Islamic than anyone else in Turabi as well. And they did have a background in the Islamic movement, they did. But when, when they got involved in politics, I'm not going to get into intentions. It doesn't matter what happened in the past. But when they were in power, it was Machiavellian. It was ends justifying means. It was the same old, I need a foreign backer. And America used that to its advantage. America used it to its advantage because it knew that Bashir wanted a relationship with America. And being a military man, and a lot of the militaries in the Muslim world are like this, they, they look for the stronger nation. Britain is not the strong nation, it's America. They want to be on America's side. So then America used to do this carrot and stick uh, approach with him. Here's a punishment, a punishment, punishment, but we'll remove it if you do this for us. And they will just keep doing that, which is why um, in, in, in uh, perhaps it's difficult to see that in the West, but if you go to the Muslim world, it's very obvious to see He's doing that for a foreign power. It's not doing it because of us. He's doing it for them, not because of us. And the only question mark on Bashir and his government was, uh, who was his backer? Was it America? Was it Russia? Was it Britain? Was it was it regional? Was it Saudi? Was it Egypt? Or did he keep changing every now and then? Because it seemed this guy was just going wherever his interests were. And uh, one time he'd be very, uh, very warm towards the country. And then all of a sudden he becomes very, very, uh, very anti. And then it comes warm again. This is like very famous in terms of the Sudan-Iranian relationships. Like they kept going hot and cold, depending on, I don't know, the, the uh, how how much uh, how much money they could make of that relationship, or how much they they saw America would allow them, or the international community. This is just that's just the the story of Sudan. When the politicians come to power, all they want to do is get foreign backing. All they want to do is get foreign backing. Right. So. I'm going to move on a little bit to to now what's recently happened. But just as so so long as people are aware of the setting of the scene of the situation within Sudan, you've got a, a country which is artificially created with numerous tribes, you know, predominantly Muslim, but there's also sizable populations of Christians and even you know uh, African traditional African religions as well within this region. Different languages. They're brought together by the British. Uh, the British are unable to maintain their rule, direct rule, so they create the systems and structures in order so that they could leave but still maintain their influence. America being a stronger superpower, you know, with Britain declining as a, as a political power, military power within the world, and economic power, suddenly have the influence within Sudan. Certain groups uh, come to power, like Omar Bashir in the 1990s. Uh, obviously, there's numerous coups that have been taking place, so, but, you know, predominant uh, uh, coup that takes place in the 1990s, Omar Bashir comes into power. Uh, he uses the Islamic sentiments. This, in part, you know, sort of counteracts some of the leftist-type sentiments that might challenge his power, but also the fact is that Sudan is an Islamic country with strong Islamic sentiments. 
that all the political leaderships have been trained, you know, from the inception, you know, in terms of independence, to be attached to the West. And the West is concerned about Sudan because it has this influential position within Africa. You know, it allows the shipping routes. It allows the trade routes. It overlooks the Middle East. It is the entry point throughout the rest of Africa. It has a lot of resources in terms of oil uh, as well as gold. So it's a very important strategic, uh, uh, you know, area within the world. So what's have been happening in the last few years now? So we've seen since Omar Bashir has been removed or even prior to that, the, the, the demonstrations of Omar Bashir, maybe... Uh, Adnan, you can enlighten us in terms of what precipitated these demonstrations, what happened. You know, again, we heard stuff in the media living in the West, but it wasn't very clear to us, Adnan. Mm. So what's happened in Sudan last few years, really, uh, 2019, where the protests started, it's not actually any different to the Arab Spring that took place in the Middle East. Omar Bashir had run the country to the ground. You know, basically, he's, he's a despot. The separation of South Sudan made the economic situation even worse. 75% of oil revenues went in South Sudan. So really, things came to an head by 2019, where people took to the streets, and they'd had enough of Omar Bashir's rule, and they weren't prepared to take any more reforms. They wanted Omar Bashir gone. So what you find is, as the protests got broader, wider, and more deeper in the country, what you find was the army themselves forced Omar Bashir to step aside. And what's interesting is, is Omar Bashir's inner circle have since then been trying to manage the transition. So what they've tried to do is remove Omar Bashir, remove the face, but the underlying architecture where the army has economic interests and they really run the country from behind the scenes, they've wanted that to continue. However, what the army's found is that the people are not accepting that. So the army's tried various things, come out with different agreements with by selecting certain civilian leaders to join them in running the country and then agreeing some sort of transition to civilian rule. And I think twice now, we've got to the point where the army was supposed to hand over power, but they found somewhere or another not to hand power over to them. What's going on now is the third time, April the 6th, they were supposed to hand over power. And what you've now found is apparently there's a dispute between the two heads of the army uh, when it came to transitioning power to civilian rule. So really what we've got is that people have had enough, they took to the streets. The army leadership, or I would say the inner circle of Umar Bashir, they're trying to maintain the status quo, but the masses aren't accepting that. So what you're seeing is various schemes and scheming going on by the army leadership in the hope that they can maintain the status quo uh, and the people accept it. And really we're at the latest stage of that now. Maybe if I yeah. could, maybe just so yeah, just, so, just, just to, so just to also just to remind the you know because some people are saying or suggesting that Yusuf uh, is Syrian and not Sudanese, half Sudanese. He was educated or he went to schooling in Sudan. Uh, he has family in Sudan uh, currently and has been active politically also in Sudan. So you know, uh, but yeah, alhamdulillah. I just wanted to make that clear uh, to anybody who's listening who's not aware of Yusuf's. Heritage, that's why we have him on. And alhamdulillah, he's oh, written yeah, paper yeah. on Sudan as well. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that, you happens a lot, no, that happens a lot, because um, uh, especially with the influx of Syrians after the Syrian revolution, because Sudan took a lot of Syrians in. Um, but there's this phrase they say in Sudan, Halab, 
which means uh, she means white, but it really is a referral to the city of Halab in Syria, because the original people looking at me come to Sudan were the Turks, and obviously Halab was referred to the to the Ottoman Khilafa because that's like the southernmost, almost Turkish dominated city. Um, but yeah, Turk, Egyptian, or Syrian, the end of the law of Halab in Sudan. Obviously, we we're not the majority, and as you said, I'm half Sudanese. Uh, but yeah, that happens a lot. But like I said, Sudan is a very diverse country, very, very diverse country. Um, and we all but just, go, just going back to the point diverse. about the last couple of years. So the last couple of yeah, years... Yeah, I just wanted to get, to maybe for your viewers to try and maybe understand or get a feel of how bad things were. Um, so December 2018, I think, is when the revolution happened, or when the spark was. And this question marks is, this, people will say it started in Damazi, which is in the south, or in Adbara in the north. Um, but we know for sure is that in Atbara is the the price of bread and the bread if you like standard is like a round piece of bread. The price of bread you could with uh, with one Sudanese pound you could buy four four of those and this was already after the economy had collapsed. Yeah, this is already a bad situation. And then within weeks, maybe days, um, you needed to pay uh, I think four or five Sudanese pounds just to get one, just to get one. And that was the spark for the revolution. Um, uh, the economy, I don't know, myself and Adam were talking earlier about, so just the stats, is that Sudan's uh, what GDP dropped from, what, 130 billion to, to 32 or something like that? Yeah, in 2018. Yeah, within one year. That's a massive collapse in the economy. I remember Bashir had done that, him and his regime. Uh, we can talk more if you want about how they systematically ruined the country. Um, Taking the army, taking over industry—it just became a cash cow. They're just milking the country to make money. So, um, so it's very similar then themselves. to—I was going to say—it's very similar to what happened in 2010, then in Tunisia, where the the demonstrations were sparked off because of dissatisfaction in terms of the economy, high massive inflation that was taking place, and a lot of this was because of the policies of the government following. World Bank's recommendations and the IMF recommendations. Yes, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so and so Sudan was following the, the you know the dictates of America in separating South Sudan as well as imposing uh, or implementing IMF policies and creating this this problem with inflation within the country and it's box off these demonstrations. Um so so you've got these demonstrations taking place, so but it doesn't always it's not always the case that you get these massive you know, uh, also with people coming out on the streets, even when they're dissatisfied. So, so what what was going on there? Sorry. Uh, well, I think the question was more in terms of why did it take so long for Sudan? Because, uh, because, and that might just come down to the people's nature, as I mentioned earlier. People are not hot-headed by their nature. Um, they persevere. Um and they persevered for a long time. So that situation was already worse than the than, than Tunisia on paper, so, at least. So Yusuf, Yusuf, I wanna so was it because what people think, some people think, and maybe there's maybe some uh, validity in some of these points, is that these are instigated, these demonstrations, popular demonstrations are instigated by the West because they want to destabilize these so-called stable Muslim countries. Mm. Yeah, and so cause more stable, chaos yeah. within them. Um, no, okay, so it's not a, it's not a direct yes or no. So it does the West does the West want to destabilize Muslim countries? Yes, because you don't want the rival power appearing, especially in the Middle East and so on and so forth. And you don't want the Islamic State to come back. 
and, and countries like Egypt, like Sudan, like Syria, like Iraq before, very powerful contenders to be a nucleus of a country that would then unify other, other Muslim countries. Uh, so obviously, all that is true, all that is true, but that doesn't mean they instigated it, but they did exploit it. 100% they did exploit it. Uh, but that's what they do, and that's what they can do. But they, they, they weren't going around instigating. Uh, you can't instigate, instigate a mass protest like that. Uh, a revolution like that. Um, how many people are we talking? How many people are we talking now on the streets in 2019? I don't hit the millions. So yeah, sure so we, millions. yeah. So we're not talking about a small number of no, Western-backed. But what the West can do, and this I think is very important to learn from what's going on in Sudan, is because they have all of these politicians and people in the military who have relationships with them embassy through the embassies or through uh personal relationships or through obviously direct uh so some of these political parties the traditional ones they have a close relationship with the egyptian government going back to even before independence and some of them uh some people have are funded by foreign powers uh someone like uh, our our current maverick who's uh who's uh primary uh primary cause of what's going on right now Hameti is is very well known to have a very close relationship and funding from uh the uae they they buy his gold you said the uae gets most of its gold from sudan the uae gets most of its gold from that which Hameti stole uh in sudan um so because of that they are able to move the political parties they're able to move people of influence to give a to try to drive public opinion in one direction that's what they can do but they didn't instigate anything so what they managed to do uh, and this is coming into why this conflict exists now is the americans the british the french um the saudis the Emiratis, the egyptians um and others they all were scrambling when the revolution began to try and direct it all been trying to direct it so obviously there's people who are pushing for complete removal of going early now complete removal of the whole military not just Ahmad Bashir everyone agreed Bashir is going I say he's going but people wanted the whole military to be removed from government others were saying just uh just just bring in someone who's civilian said others were were thinking more in terms of uh, of uh, just it's just him it's just him just him there's no need for any any, any other differences and there's others so what they were trying to push towards is one side and we'll get to this one side was trying to keep the military in place because it's a reliable institution uh, it's the only institution left more more or less in, in the country that's countries which were you can say broadly the american saudi camp who were trying to keep the military but get rid of Ammar bashir so they wanted to have this situation where they have to obviously give in to the demands of the public and they have to push for democratization which is something they began already and liberalization they began already under Ahmad Bashir's time, through IMF pressure and normalization with designers, all of this had happened under his watch because he was looking for that approval from, from the Americans. So they wanted to keep that as a reliable institution they can use and they keep punishing and rewarding the military, but obviously give it a start to speed up the democratization process. But on the other side, you get these political parties who are backed by the British, the French, and uh, the UAE, and so on, um, who wanted the complete um ousting of the military from 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 government and to set a completely civilian ruling place and you find that what happened with the protests is that all sides were pushing public opinion towards the civilian rule 
that's what the West was capable of doing, but not instigating the 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 revolution. And once they got to that point, where as Adnan Khan mentioned, the army was under so much pressure, they removed Bashir himself. They had to give in to a civilian government. Now the whole fight became political, and the people have become become sidelined and become a victim of the games played by both sides here. One side trying to give trying to create like a, a makeshift puppet civilian government, and the other side trying to keep remove the army completely from power. And that's carried on. One side using using people in the street as a pressure card to get what they want. And then the other side using force, force to break up the, the, the protesters uh, and, and uh, extrajudicial killings and assassinations, drowning people in the Nile River, stuff like that to try and, and bring back uh, fear. And when that didn't work, then they just had to, had to play along and then look for a chance to cancel what they had agreed uh, the, the coup, which um, Adnan alluded to. And that's how the game's been like this for, for since then. It's foreign powers moving people, politicians and the army on the ground, because they're trying to get full control of the government themselves. And the latest round of this is the December framework agreement they agreed in, in, in last December, and where it was getting to the point where they had to hand over in April, beginning of April, 6th, 11th of April. And they didn't want to do that. So they had to come up with, with, a, with a new reason to cancel the uh, the framework, which is why they were attacking each other on, on in public a lot, Hamidi and Burhan. And someone fired a shot somewhere, and this is where we are right now. Okay, so so let me try and understand what's go what's going on because it's a complex situation. Yeah, yeah. So what you yeah. what you're basically saying is that there's legitimate concerns. It's not that there are not legitimate concerns. There were legitimate concerns from the people of Sudan against Omar Bashir. They were upset, they were angry, and in fact, they took a while before they went out on the streets, and there were millions of them. However, what you had is you had people within the power elites or the heads of political parties or heads of political movements who, in one way or another, wanted to maintain the status quo. Either the status quo is the maintenance of military rule with maybe some sort of veneer of civilian government, yeah, or a civilian government that's backed by or civilian political parties that are backed by European and UK powers. So the, the military, as we mentioned, historically, uh, you know, post the British was inclined towards America, were being trained by America, were being funded by America to a certain extent. And so now you've got this tension between the political establishments within this country who are using the popular upri uh, uprisings and the demonstrations in order to vie with one another for power and the backers of that were the western european states and they had some sort of competition going on as to who can be the influential political party you have omar bashir removed like we've seen within egypt hosni Mubarak removed but unfortunately the system sort of remains and so i think this way comes into the two main protagonists that we currently have yeah so we have, uh, you know, um, uh, we have Hameti that you mentioned, who's from Darfur. And then you have General Abdul Fattah. Uh, what's his surname again? Sorry. Al-Burhan. Yeah, Al-Burhan. Sorry. So you have these two protagonists that are taking place. They're both from a military background. And if I understand this correctly, they were both originally appointed by Omar Bashir. So they were the ones that removed Omar Bashir from power. Is that correct, Adnan? 
Yeah, so both of them come from slightly different backgrounds because you've got the standing army, which uh, Burhan, General Burhan is in charge of. So this is the active army. This is the professional army. They mainly go to Egypt. They get trained, yeah? Uh, and and he, he Abdul Fattah Burhan, he's the, he was the chairman. He was the head. Yeah, he, he was the head. There was actually someone actually above him. He was actually lieutenant general when the coup happened. Uh, however, very quickly, uh, the actual general resigned and Al-Burhan came to the fore. But he was part of the inner circle of Umar Bashir. Where uh, Hamdati comes in, which is quite interesting, Hamdati actually was a militia from Darfur. When Darfur became problematic, Umar Bashir needed someone from Darfur to deal with the Darfur tribes that were basically rebelling. So what's happened is over the years, uh, arms, heavy equipment went to them. And they went from being uh, a Janjaweed, a militia, to now actually there's about 100,000 plus soldiers in this militia, which is now called the Rapid Support Forces, which now is basically a paramilitary force. So it's really on par with the actual military uh, itself. But because they fought guerrilla warfare, because their soldiers have gone to Yemen and fought there, they're actually quite, they've cut their teeth basically on the battlefield. The professional army uh, hasn't actually cut its teeth on the battlefield for a long time yet. So really what you've got is they've come from two different places, but they are uh, the military uh, in this particular country. And they were the inner circle, both Hamdeti and Burhan were really the top five inner circle of Omar Bashir. So they've removed him when his days were numbered. And what they're trying to do is maintain the status quo where the army stays as the ultimate power. However, they need to deal with these civilian groups, these unions, the, the, the masses. And, and that's really where they're stuck now. This has been going on since 2019. And in fact, what you're seeing now, this is to be more and more public opinion against the army. Uh, people could sense now the army doesn't want to give up power. And at the same time, the country, you know, the economy has been running to the ground. Things haven't improved since 2019. In fact, um, the IMF just recently imposed quite a severe condition, actually, uh, on Sudan if it wants to receive uh, more money. So, you know, here we are after all these years, and you're still seeing the establishment, really, in Sudan from the army. They're still trying to maintain their grip uh, uh, on power. They don't have it completely yet. Uh, and really what they're struggling to do is get the masses to accept that this is going to be the status quo. So what they're trying to do is really reach out to different leaders of these groups, ones that are prepared to work with them. They're probably making promises to them of leadership positions. Uh, and they are trying to create a transitional period where they say they will hand over to civilian uh, 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 power, uh, but they never do. Uh, and that's unfortunately uh, where we are at the moment. I mean, it's similar. This is what happened in Egypt, where... Uh, you know, you had a government uh, and the army came in uh, and overthrew them in the end. And really, if you look at in Egypt, Sisi's used, you know, brutal force really to maintain his grip on power. Hasn't improved the situation in Egypt. The, the economy has actually uh, hit rock bottom in Egypt as well. So there's obviously a lot of lessons that the people of Sudan need to learn. Uh, but that's where we are really uh, at the moment. Okay, so... In terms of, because obviously the way it's being projected in the West, certainly in the BBC, is that you got Hamedti who wants to bring the Janjaweed, the militia, uh, the RSF, into the regular army. Uh, you've got Al-Burhan who's basically disagreed with this and wants to maintain 
his army as the only army within it, and therefore there is a fighting between the two. Is that is that what it's about then? See, uh, no, 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 because it's actually not clear um, who has the problem with this. So um, between the two of them, it's actually not clear. Um, so it's the British Embassy actually that came up with this idea of reforming the the military. The Sudanese army has to be reformed. It can't just transition, give power to the civilian government, which is what the Americans were saying. They need to transition, democratize, hold elections. That's what the Americans were saying. Um, uh, but the British would say, no, the army has to be reformed. The army has to let go of industry. The army has to bring in the paramilitary, the other rebels, not just uh, Darfur, but people from Kurdufan and other areas. They have to be brought into the Sudanese army. The army has to be reshuffled, restructured. And obviously, Hameti and the RSF have to be folded into the military as well. Uh, and then they have to give up all of the, um, any, any, like the Ministry of Defense. These all have to be in civilian rule. So that's, that was coming out of the, the British Embassy. And that's what the, the political um, parties of what we call GAHT, the Freedom of Forces and Change. It's a coalition of coalitions of the same old political parties that ran Sudan to the ground in the, in the 80s before Bashir school. Uh, before um, and they're hiding behind different names because obviously they don't want to they have a bad name from the Sudanese people already but them together and amongst them by the way there's lots of differences but just for the sake of simple simplicity and, and brevity let's treat them as one group when they're not really one group um, they are pushing for this and, and the pressure card they have against the military is the fact that you are Bashir's men and the revolution came out to get rid of you and if we want, we can pull put the people pull the people back onto the streets again. Yeah, and that's that was their pressure card. That was their pressure card they were using. Um, so what the so the agreement they had in December was they said we're gonna come, it's a framework agreement. They didn't actually agree to anything then. They said they were gonna agree to five or six workshops, five or six workshops between then and April, where they are going to agree on the details of this new transition, uh transitional system um where they did want to change the system the the muslim brotherhood in egypt did not attempt to change the system in in, in egypt um, they were allowed to rule obviously they weren't in actual control the army let the economy collapse and then they used it as an excuse to come back into power here the army is actually being threatened to have its power taken away by these by this agreement um so and then there's different works just one has to do with the issues in the east of the country, one has to do with the uh, social justice. Uh, but the main one, the important one, the final one, was to do with the security forces and the army, which when it was coming to that, Hameti and Burkhan all of a sudden started to uh, get upset at each other and not talk to each other in public and start accusing each other of stuff. It, when it came to that point, and then literally on the, almost, I think, one or two days, or was it on the same day, when they were supposed to sign it on the 6th of April, um, they, they they refused to turn up. They refused to sign it. Uh, they talk of well, well, we can't sign as the military on one side with the politicians if the military now is not in agreement of what's going to happen between them. So it's still actually not clear who who didn't like it between the two of them. Who didn't want the RSF folded in? Is it because Burhan didn't want Hameti to become uh, someone who's actually having uh, to have a real rank in the army and have subordinates beneath him and and, can, and access to the economy which and the industry which him and his friends control? Or is it Hameti who doesn't want to lose the the loyal force he has because they're, most of them are from the same tribe in that fort? He doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to be folded into a, 
professional army. It's not clear which one of them had an issue, honestly. But what was clear is both of them didn't want to hand over power to the civilians. And this was an excuse now to uh, prevent this from happening. Okay. And then four days later, they were supposed to have started the new government on the 11th. They were, they were supposed to be everything signed by the 6th of April, 11th of April. We have a new transitional government and the army has given up everything and started this transition. But on 15th of April, someone fired a, fired a, a bullet somewhere. And now both commanders, in my opinion, they can't back down because people have died. If they back down, they lose face in front of their own their own men. Shreve, just to add one final yeah, point here. Quite a few journalists this week are saying it's all rather convenient that the generals are falling out with each other. Just when it's come to the point to hand over power, this is the third occasion they were supposed to hand over power. So quite a few journalists are arguing it's all rather convenient they've fallen out with each other, the timing really, when it came to actually handing over power. So I think it's just something to keep in mind really. Okay, so is, they, and people's blood yeah. is very cheap for them. They don't, they don't really, they really don't care. These both of them, Burhan and Hamid. Burhan was uh, was a field commander during the um, during the Darfur conflict. He worked alongside Hamid on the ground. They killed thousands of people in Darfur. They 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 burnt villages down. They, they don't care what happens in Khartoum. Hmm. So in essence, basically, what you're saying is that the British were pushing for reforms within the military. Part of those reforms would be the fact that they would have to probably succeed a, a certain amount of power within the country, hand over the political reins to the civil uh, political parties. Um, this obviously favours those those political parties who are in line with British interests within this region. The military are not happy about this situation. They've been delaying and delaying and delaying. And suddenly at the, at the moment they're meant to hand over power, suddenly you have this... A breakout of fighting between these two group, two two uh, factions within the military, who both have had a very strong relationship in the past. That's what you're basically saying. And what's also quite interesting, uh, you know, what we've been hearing in the BBC news is that there were attacks against the British embassy, and Britain had to remove many of their British citizens out out of the country as well through military uh, uh, aircrafts. Uh, out of the country, yeah. Many of the um, um, embassy workers, diplomats, etc. So you know, it seems convenient. Now we've we've been speaking for a long time. We've been going into a lot of detail, alhamdulillah. Uh, I've appreciated it. I hope the uh, audience have appreciated it. But I do want to take some of the audience's questions and comments. And um, we've linked the uh, Streamyard account, uh, Streamyard link. So if anybody wants to come on uh to discuss to argue even or to make a comment uh, of themselves you can join the show you can raise your points and the panelists uh will be here to answer them inshallah or respond uh, uh to those points as well so you know you have this opportunity now uh but in the meantime i do want to go through some of the the questions and comments that have been posted to us in the live chat uh so um, I think we've answered this one uh, quite sufficiently, inshallah. Uh, sorry, we've covered Yusuf now, unfortunately, but we'll we'll read out the comment. Anyway, what are examples of US and UK interference in Sudan? They paint themselves as helpers, mediators between the groups uh, in Sudan. Uh, so, are we generally covered this one? I don't want to just give a very brief because we've got quite a few questions, so very brief answers. I mean, America's interference influence just look at the separation of south sudan uh go back 
uh, and you will see, I mean, that was an American project, America forced that uh, on, on the ruler. With the British, have a look at the ambassadors to Sudan. They've been very active the last three, four years, uh, meeting all the different civilian groups uh, and things like that. And look at their statements, look at the groups who they've been meeting. All of these are indicators that these are not just people, you know, sitting on the benches having a watch what's going on. You know, these are active participants trying to take part in the events that are taking place. Yeah. Is it also true that Al-Burhan was meeting with uh, with Zionists as well and the Zionist entity? So Al-Burhan yes. looks as though uh, Trump uh, made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And he, he, well, Saddam was one of the countries that was part of the Abraham Accords. Um, uh, it, it was one of the first tier countries that was actually part of it. Uh, I mean, for Israel, for a long time, uh, Ethiopia and Sudan were going to be the countries that if they could normalize relations with, it would show the legitimacy of Israel. And obviously, with the protests that were going on, uh, Burhan saw it as a way to get closer to uh, America. Uh, and also, it probably would have eased up some of the financial situation. Uh, it hasn't quite worked out that way, because since uh, Biden's come in, the Abraham Accords have uh, drastically slowed down. And now that Saudi and Iran are talking to each other, it's completely uh, changed it. But uh, you know, again, you've got internal issues going on, and then you've got a ruler rather than dealing with internal issues, he's busy dealing with foreign issues. It shows you where his mm -hmm. priorities are. Yeah, uh, we've got a question here Britain has sent its soldiers to Sudan. What is the actual reason uh, behind it? So, this is probably this is quite a new. I mean, today you've seen the evacuation of, I think, people from this country, they're British who are Sudanese. Um, I think in Darfur, there was an attack on British officials. So I, I assume it's because of that. Uh, I don't think this is a military intervention by Britain, purely because Britain doesn't have the capability, really, uh, to be intervening so, so far from home. So this is probably just a security measure because there's instability uh, at the moment. Um, there could be other purposes as well, but it's quite early. I mean, one thing that's interesting is since this kicked off in Ramadan, uh, the BBC, Britain, had been giving it a wall-to-wall -wall coverage. Uh, really, if you look at the last year, Ukraine has been getting wall-to-wall -wall coverage. I mean, most, some people may know about Darfur, what happened in Darfur in the UK. Uh, really, very few people know about Sudan. So that's an indicator. Britain's giving it importance. Britain wants British, the British public to know, which means that, you know, Britain's, they're viewing this as a very important development. And obviously, they're going to want to shape it. Yeah, I don't know if you got any thoughts on that, Yusuf. Particularly the point about the BBC and the British media, their focus uh, on this issue of Sudan, because that took me by surprise. Uh, but obviously, whenever Western media has a laser sort of sighted focus on a particular region, it's because they have an interest within that region. Well, yeah, obviously, because of the whole uh, the December framework has now blown up their faces. Is they had to scramble uh, to get um, uh, to build pressure from outside Sudan on on uh, on Burhan and Hameti um, to stop the fighting between themselves and to get back onto the negotiating table. And this is what we find interesting is that is that um, the USA has only been talking about ceasefires, not stopping the war, which I think is, is quite interesting uh, because it suits them that this carries on. And it carries right. on and just carries on. Yeah, so they're happy to have ceasefires, but they're not talking about actually ending the situation because the last thing they want is for Burhan Hameti to sit down with the politicians again. It's better for them if after they've killed so many people, after they've destroyed the country, 
after people have got tired of what's happening, they say, well, you know what, we just need these two to agree and everything's sorted out. And then because mm. of what they've done to the country, people are just going to accept it. That's, the, that's, that's basically it. It's very dark. It's very Machiavellian. People's lives don't matter to them at all. And those those two, um, again, they they don't care. They don't care about the the, the 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 cost it has because at the end of the day, they get what they want and the masters get what they want. Uh, I think we've sort of uh, looked at this question already. Who's actually doing the killing? So at the beginning, it was um, stray bullets, stray RPG missiles. Uh, because it was fighting between the RSF and the and the army, and then when the army started to to conduct airstrikes, it started hitting civilian areas um, accidentally. And their excuse is obviously that the uh, that the RSF is hiding between people. The RSF has actually been attacking people on the ground. They've been they've been attacking people's homes. Um, uh, they've they've uh, they've looted so many uh, so many shops, so many stores, so many houses, uh, and they're just loose. They're just loose in the capital right now. Yeah, we've actually got a guest, uh, surprise guest. So I wasn't expecting this brother to come on. Uh, so I'll add him to the stream. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. We can hear you, but we can't see you. It's brother Yahya Nesbit. It's probably for the best. <laughs> Let me see if I can deal with this. You don't need to see me. Oh, there we go. We got. Oh no, we did have you. We didn't, but then we lost you. There we go. We got it. I don't know why I'm the biggest one here, but but Jazakallah um, for yeah, yeah, for joining us. Inshallah. Have you got a question, comment? No, it's a question. I've been reading the questions and the the comments in the in the chat that that comes on YouTube, and a number of them in Arabic, some of them in English. And uh, but one poignant question uh, that keeps popping up is that you know, do do you have a solution? Or is it just words that we're speaking today? So that's really I wanted. I, I translated it, but I wanted to put it to you guys to, to to address the you know what is it that Hizb can do in Sudan immediately, and what is the short term and long term solution really? So it's a good question, uh, Adnan Yusuf. It's a. It's, 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 I've been itching to talk about this because like we have to get to this point mention of you know summarize say it in english but also say it in arabic a little bit as well because we do have to have some arabic sudanese listeners at the moment so it'll be useful for them to hear yeah so um we'll do it in english uh... and we'll let Adnan translate into arabic <laughs> <laughs> no the joke so yes i've got carried um because you're trying to understand the situation people are in um I think it's thousands of people who are trying to leave Khartoum at the moment. I think it's thousands. I can't be sure 100%. But everybody I know is trying to leave. My grandmother, my uncles, my, my cousins, they're all, trying to, they're all trying to get out. People, friends I know, they're all trying to get themselves and their families out. Some people have moved to other cities in Sudan. And some people have gone to Egypt. Some people have gone to Ethiopia. Some people have gone to Eritrea. Some people are trying to get to Port Sudan and then on a, on a, on a ship to Saudi Arabia. Um, it's a basically what what these guys did in that fort. They brought to to to, uh, to the capital city. That's that's same people. That's what they've done. So it's a very acute situation right now. As I say in Arabic, uh, there's no no voice is louder than the voice of the battle. You know, no whatever people says at the end of the day, there's a battle going on, and that always takes precedence, and that boxes people people into 
two options. Are you with Hennetti? And all the nonsense he's talking about, he's up for democracy and he's trying to get rid of the Islamists, which nobody believes that's him. By the way, he's put this stuff on Facebook and nobody believes that's him. He can't, he can't spell democracy in Arabic or English. Um, or are you with the army? Who's calling him a rule and and uh, and uh, an rebel that needs to be put down? And who saw that one? And I think most people in Sudan um, would say, well, well, whether they like him or not, want the army to put these, this rebellion down at least, this rebellion down at least. And by being boxed into these options, then you get to the political solution or the trap which America wants people to come down eventually, which is to accept um, that military regime as the best of the worst options you have you don't want to go back to that fighting again you just have to accept it yeah and that's and that's what they want people to come down and given that situation uh and given the fact that democracy has failed so many times in sudan so many times democracy is failing here in the uk um what the people need and what the people want obviously is to have um a representative government for themselves one that actually looks after the the their affairs that doesn't cause problems to carry on power, which is what all citizens' governments have been doing. Um, uh, doesn't work on the for the interests of lobbies and and groups, which is literally what the, democracy is about. And doesn't try to take control of the country and its economy for itself, which is what the military dictatorship has done. Yeah, so democracy and dictatorship are both wrong answers in this equation, both completely incorrect answers. We need a third way, but to get to the third way, this battle still has to stop. This battle still has to has to end. So to get a representative government, to get one that actually looks after the affairs of the people, the one that in its basis it exists in order to serve the people, not to serve either a small group of of uh, elites and friends like the dictatorship or lobbyists and people who and backers, which is what democracy is about. Uh, in order to get that. You need to have a third system. Its philosophy is completely different, and so what we believe in, which is the Islamic system. And the Islamic system, as exists in, in, in the culture and history of Islam, is the Khilafah. But we have produced a constitution which is applicable right now, Hezb um, has, and uh, we've been campaigning for it in Sudan. But obviously, we're not part of the political life because we're not part of the, those games. This battle still needs to finish before anything can happen, though. This is just the reality. The battle has to has to end. So. Until this finishes, um, the the what the people need is support. Uh, I'm not talking physical support only, because people need physical support. They need financial support. They need help. A lot of people need help get, getting out of Sudan. But they need um, mental support as well to stay uh, steadfast, because this is a trap. This is a game being played against the Sudanese people. This is the point. So once the battle ends and America thinks, okay, now they're going to accept whatever we force upon them and, and we're at the military, that the people will come out saying, actually, no, we don't accept this. You've you've played your trump card. How can it get worse than this? What else are they going to play? What else are they going? What else are going to use? How more severe can they try to force a situation which will make people just give in? But if people come out at the end of this, which people need help now, but if people come out with a strong mentality at the end of this and still refusing the dictatorship of Burhan and the military, then we've actually made a big uh, step. And the final solution, the only thing that will allow anything to work is to cut foreign ties fully, completely. Islam has uh, has specified relations which can occur between states, and we've, we've uh, detailed it in our constitution. And one of the most fundamental points is that ambassadors and embassies are conduit points 
between two states, and that's it. So the ambassador of Sudan should be speaking to, the, to uh, for example, the American government, and the American ambassador speaks to the Sudanese government, and that is it. But what we find the reality is the American ambassadors, and even before they imported the ambassador, the envoys and, and other staff members, and the British, uh, British ambassador and others, they go around speaking to political parties, opposition parties, Sufi movements. They go to mosques, they chat to people, but they've got nothing to do because they're trying to build uh, followers, backers, and people they can rely on and create influence within the country. Sudan is such an open country to foreign influence. It's almost like a colony. It's like it's never become independent. It's, and, and the government just gives off land to whoever wants to take it as well. There's so much land in Sudan that's just given to, given to foreign powers while people are starving. More people are starving. So you have nothing will be sold in Sudan until that's that is actually cut and stopped. And the only people that can actually do that within Sudan is the military. That's the reality. But the military is run by who? Those puppets themselves. So there is no way forward until the military actually rids itself of its of its puppet leaders. Having said that, the real problem on the ground, the RSF still exists. Something needs to be done about it. So I don't think this is something that be that can be avoided. Um, the RSF has to be has to be stopped. Whether that means that there is a change in the RSF leadership as well, because that can happen, and that has happened in the past. The Osman Khazraj were warring entities, but they did come together when the leaderships died out or died killed each other in the Harb of Wa'atha, the Wa'ath War before Muhammad moved to Medina, where minds that will actually think and look around them and see that not, nothing around what's going on here can be good for anyone when they start to go back to the to the, to the as we say rushed in Arabic, when they go back to the to thinking again like they get common sense again um we, the two can be unified on a new political system but it requires as a condition to remove all foreign interference that's one and two is to come together military must submit military has to submit to a political authority the military doesn't rule the military must submit but they have to submit to something which is ready to be implemented, not something that's going to take 50 years to try and agree because you're trying to give everyone a piece of the country, some ministry, some 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 economic interest, because that's what all of this is about. All of the political democratic parties are just about that because that is what democracy is about. Honestly, it's about it's about getting uh, getting for yourself and your backers um, benefit from the country. It has to be a new constitution, a new system that is truly truly about serving the people and about establishing justice. And that is that is the Khilaf state, but foreign interference has to go. Nothing can be solved in Sudan that goes away, nothing. Yeah, I think uh, often we hear these points where people are asking, what's the solution, what's the solution? Part of the solution is to understand the reality. Part of the solution is to understand how we got to this reality, to understand you know, a certain level of our history you know, and history of some of these nations and history of colonialism, post-colonialism. Because without understanding this, then you're going to have a situation where you're just going to react to an event and react to situations rather than be proactive. And I think this is part of the issue is that we, part of this show, you know, we're not going to solve the problem through this show, but part of this show is to help educate and elevate our understanding of the reality so that we're not just reacting to situations or we're not just following the narratives that the BBC or Western media are giving to us. We're able to shape our own narratives. And then from that, as, as Joseph mentioned, some really good points in terms of educating, culturing the people in order to understand what type of system will achieve for them success, not only in this life, but also in the hereafter, and giving them clarity of how to implement that solution 
through maybe a constitution so that that becomes their yearning, including educating and culturing those people within the armed forces so that they can recognize when leadership is corrupt and when leadership is not looking after and serving their interests, but rather the interest of foreign powers. And as uh, Yusuf mentioned as well, which is a very good point as well, is to to ensure that the foreign influence, particularly through embassies and uh, and envoys, are not you know creating these deep networks within Muslim societies or within Sudanese societies, such that they have such influence on not only in the military but also in terms of the economy, the economists, the ministers, the politicians, as well as even as you mentioned certain Islamic movements within that country. So I think there's a lot there's a lot to unpack, and it is. Sometimes people don't appreciate that just having this conversation is part of a solution as well. Yeah, yeah. Can I, I can just add to that yeah. because, because yeah. like I said, it's it's um right now it's a very difficult situation. So you can't. It's difficult to think about what happens next. You're thinking about survival. Right yeah. Now. Yeah. So there's a responsibility people have outside for them to help uh, guide the people in Sudan in terms of because we're all one Ummah. Almost mm. all Umar, to guide them not to fall for these traps because these games they played before this ceasefire that they had, which uh, so called ceasefire, uh, it just reduced the fighting. This is how they had it's, it's just do you remember in the Syrian revolution when the uh, the the US, Russia, the UN they were coming up with these um, these humanitarian corridors and ceasefires and they would talk about, oh, it's for humanitarian needs. But then what they were doing is actually they were just giving time for Bashar, Bashar al-Assad to regroup and then to go fight people who are not part of the ceasefire agreement so that he picks up people one by one. So it was used as a, as a strategy to give the upper hand to Bashar al-Assad. This ceasefire is giving Hamati the chance to go bring more forces from Chad. This is what's happening. So some of these things, like, it's difficult to see when you're on the ground but people outside can help because there's a the Hamati and Wuhan are in this together. They're in this together. They have differences, doesn't matter. Because the bigger picture is that they are trying to keep power on their side and keep the civilians out. Yeah. And so they want to make it, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I think it's very important that people outside Muslims see that we, we have a responsibility to to also enlighten and educate um us in the West. We live in the West about what democracy actually is. Because what we want in the Muslim world is we want representative government. Yes, we want justice, we want law, we want law and order. We want, uh, we want a, a, a rule of law. We want to be able to choose the leader as well and also remove them. Um, these are all things which we get promised in democracy and we don't see. Yeah, But these yeah. are all things which actually existed in the Khilafah Rashid. So there's, I think, there's a responsibility we have to tell the Muslims back home, democracy isn't actually what you think it is. We live through it, and it's not—it's not what you think it is. There's a lot that it tries to um, it tries to claim it's this, and it's unique to them. But it exists actually in many other systems, like elections or, or accountability or free government. But that's not the crux of it. The crux of it is um, small assembly of people making laws, forcing upon everyone else by majority vote within that assembly. And in reality, it's just to serve the interests of those who back them. That is the reality of it. And this is something that we need to also educate because if we come at the end of this and we still say, oh, but democracy is the way forward because at least we'll get rid of the army or oh, but the army gave us security. Remember how things weren't like this before. Then we're still going to be stuck within these options and we're still going to be um, played by uh, by the foreign powers.
Yeah, it's it's funny because you know the types of arguments that you're presenting that that's that's been discussed within Sudan are very similar to other areas, other other countries in the Muslim world, like in Pakistan, it's very similar. You know, it's 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 crazy. But I want to move on to other questions as well. Um, uh, I know the time is is you know is on us a little bit, but I'm trying to get through to as many questions and also the opportunity for people to join the show is still here. Uh, so there's a question here that is uh, Russia is seeking a base near the Red Sea and has been granted permission, uh, caveated on the appointment of a civil government. Does this factor into recent events or not? Adnan? No, not at all. And you got to be careful, yeah? Russia has a strategy to present itself as a power. So what we can't do is start thinking they're a power and start looking at some of the things they're doing and thinking they're involved in other parts of the world. Uh, Russia's got a massive problem at the moment, and it's in Ukraine, and it's struggling to deal with it. Russia has no capacity to deal with anything in other parts of the world. Ukraine's on its border, and it's a million times more important. The funny thing with this is Russia doesn't really even have a navy to talk about, uh, considering that it needs a naval base so far away from home. Russia doesn't have influence in this part of the world. However, Russia can send a couple of soldiers it can send a ship, which is very old, to parts of the world, and it wants to promote the image that, look, we're a power. It physically can't do anything more than that. The fact that it struggled in Ukraine, which is on its border, it's a million times more important, will show you how much power it really actually has. I do know look, a lot of people hope, they wish that the Western-led order is on its knees. So they get very excited when Russia does something or when China does something. But we've got to be careful here. We don't blow what they're doing out of proportion. What they do is small things here and there. And both China and Russia are very good at promoting small acts that they actually do. If you look at both of these countries' key interests, and in the case of Russia and Ukraine, it shows you they've got severe problems there and they can't actually shape that conflict uh, into its advantage. So, yes, they'll ask for the odd base here and there. Wagner Group, which is a militia group, which is a... Putin's uh, Janjaweed militia, they're doing different things in Africa, but none of that's really dealing with any of the major political issues in Africa. This is really to promote this global image uh, uh, Russia actually has. So, yeah, I wouldn't look, I wouldn't look too much uh, into that. Even if they've got the naval base, they really lack the capability to send a lot of ships there in the first place. Right. Okay, just off the head. Uh... We, I think we've answered this question, but I'll ask it anyway again. But I want to, I want the answer to be really brief because I think we've already cut, uh, touched upon this. Who are the RSF and how did they reach this level of influence and power? And what is the root cause? Well, we'll leave the root cause. Uh, I think we've dis- discussed that. But who are the RSF, just to remind the audience? Okay, so Ahmad Bashir wanted to deal with the rebellions in Darfur created by his policies and in order to fight on the ground uh, guerrilla warfare against those tribes. He created this paramilitary group, which was a militia before. Janjaweed became a uh, rapid support force, Dam Sariya. And um, they were used on the ground to fight them. And they have, most of them come from the Rizigat tribe, which is this north of Darfur, uh, an Arab tribe. Um, they're used by Bashir, they've obviously funding from the state centrally, but they've also acted almost semi-independently with permission from the central government. So they get money from the European Union for preventing uh, migration. So people who come from sub-Saharan Africa cross through Sudan to get to the Mediterranean. The RSF um, 
stops African migrants in return for money. They've also taken control of uh, a lot of gold mines. So Hamid's wealth comes from, and then they sell it off uh, to, for example, the UAE. Um, yeah, that's where they come from, uh, and they've ballooned in power uh, in terms of financial, because they are mercenaries more or less. Most of them are mercenaries. They're just financial power. Arrests exist. Take their money away. They don't exist anymore. It's like it's like the classic African militias from the 1990s and maybe early 2000s. You know these these types of militias and you know, you've got like, you know, diamond mines taking over diamond mines, becoming extremely wealthy, having child soldiers. I don't think they've had child soldiers in, in yes, uh, RSF. But, you know, yeah. it, it comes across as though it's very similar to that. Um, so there's another question um, uh, uh, here. I think this one specifically to you, Yusuf. Uh, Brother Taji uh, has asked, how are you, how's Yusuf Hanif's family members in Sudan managing as a result of the last few days of fighting? So I know it's a personal uh, question. You don't need I'm to. I'm not sure if I mentioned it earlier, but, but it's yeah. like many others in in, in Khartoum because they're they're from Khartoum North, so it's so across the uh, the the White Nile between Khartoum City and or we'll call it Bahri, Khartoum and Bahri, and um, so uh, the power has been cut because there was a there's a, what do you call it there's a malfunctioning some some breakdown in the the power plant, but. Because of the fighting was occurring next to it between the army and, and the RSF, no one's no technicians have got, has gone to fix it. Um, uh, sorry, water, water, not, not, not the power. That was water. So they went from the beginning until now. There's no clean water. Um, electricity obviously is on and off, but Sudan's always been like that, um, on and off, on and off. And when the bombing started in their area, um, they crossed. The, the Blue Nile to or the Great Nile to Omdurman. Um because Sudan uh, Khartoum is three cities at the connection of the um, of the Nile River to to white the White Nile from the south, Blue Nile from the east connect and they become the Great Nile that goes to Egypt. So you have three pieces of land. Khartoum is the south, Bahri the north and the Umdurman is east. So they went to a relative's house in, in, in Umdurman which is slightly safer. It was safer for two days and then the uh, the bombing started there. So my grandmother, 74 years old, has been on the floor to keep her head down. She's been taught to stay on the floor when the when the fighting occurs, so the bullets don't don't come through and hit her. But that's the, that's the case for for many families. They're trying to leave. Uh, it's difficult. Um, uh, people have families have broken up already. Uh, no, their my direct family is still together because they want to leave and come together, but. Extended family families are broken. Brothers, brothers have some gone up north to Abdara, some have gone to Kassala in the east. Some people have gone to Egypt now, um, and uh, it's the same story everywhere. If you can leave, um, you're trying to leave. That's what's happening right now. Well, we make dua, inshallah, that Allah subhanahu wa saves your family, protects them, and protects the Muslims of Sudan, and ends this conflict as soon as possible, and gives a goodly outcome, inshallah. I mean. Uh, there's another question uh, from Jamal Adin. Uh, he's asked, "Is there likelihood of further breakup? Uh, there is talk of Darfur seceding from Sudan under Hameti." Uh, yeah, that's a possibility. So the way it might play out is if um, if this carries on for a long time, and you don't see. And they don't see an appetite for the people. Sorry, a loss of appetite by the people. And everyone just says, you know what, just, 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 just come to an agreement. Whatever happens, we'll accept. Because remember, these two are, are everyone's offering to mediate between them. 
everyone, even the Zionists, are offering to mediate between the two of them, and they're just refusing to talk to each other, and they because they're waiting for the right time, basically. Yeah? And one of the main mediators, the main mediators, there's two in Sudan right now. There's the Quad and there's the tripartite mechanism. Quad is basically UK, US, uh, UK, USA, Saudi Arabia, and the, and the UAE. That's one assembly. So they host meetings. They also decide who turns up to these meetings as well. So they, they're deciding who's important, who's not in Sudan as well. And the other one is the tripartite mechanism, which is uh, UNITAMS, IGADS, and uh, UNITAMS, IGADS, and AU. So African Union, uh, IGADS is is, uh, is, a, is is like an EU for Eastern African countries. So Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda, all of these countries. And the, and the, um, and the UNITAMS is the United Nations um, mission there, which is led by a chap from Germany called Volker Peters, um, who's acting almost like um, the viceroy of Sudan at the moment, sitting above everyone and, and trying to be a kingmaker. So if you want to get anything done, you have to, these two are the ones who are housing all the negotiations. They were the ones running the workshops. So all the workshops, if you read the titles of the people, the workshops teaching the Sudanese people how they should reform the military, they're all Western names, all, all English names. If you want to get to the, the level of subservience these politicians have to, to the foreigners, can't even think of, think of their own systems. Um, so these are these are the ones who are trying to mediate, but Burhan and Hamid are refusing to meet at the moment. Blinken, the US Secretary of State, has spoken to both of them. Different the foreign ministers of Britain or Italy, they've spoken to both of them, and they're refusing to speak. They're waiting for the right time. That right time is when they feel people have given up, and they'll just accept so long as these... But if they feel that's never going to happen, they feel that's never going to happen. Then America has a few choices here because it, it can't keep this going on, obviously. And one of the choices it has is let's just go down a new path. Let's give Hamedti Darfur because they've created the justification of them hating each other and fighting. Mm. And then they'll secede uh, Darfur like they did South Sudan because this is something they've been trying to do for a while anyway. But then the revolution happened and that took precedence over what's going on. So if they feel having a political solution cannot be achieved because there's resilience from the people then that's, that might be something they they, they could do uh, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that um, that doesn't happen we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala obviously that the that uh, we also regain South Sudan again and mm -hmm. the whole uh, Islamic Ummah is united into one country once again rather than becoming weaker the smaller okay. we become the weaker we become Okay, I, I know we've been going on for a while actually and uh, you know I don't want to take too much of your time especially on a school night uh and a work night for many um but i just want to just ask maybe one final question uh and jazakallah khair for everybody who's been asking questions i've tried to go through as many questions as possible we've gone through quite a few alhamdulillah today but um i wanted to ask about what you potentially see that's going to happen in the coming maybe weeks or months you know, in in the situation, and uh, I know we've already touched upon it, but what would we like to see happen uh, within within Sudan in the, in the coming future? Adnan, what's your okay, analysis? I wish about? I could be positive. Uh, probably the positive thing is the people took to the streets and wanted a change in the system, right? So obviously, that was three years ago, yeah. And obviously, what you're finding is the system is trying to defend itself, yeah. However, the system is multiple people. Yes, yeah, got two leaders. So really what the people need to be doing is actually searching for those officers who maybe have the same vision or, have, or can be one to the same view uh, on how, the direction the country should go. There's probably officers in the army that are looking at this, looking at the instability 
and they're probably not unhappy. They're probably unhappy with this. Um, so the fact that the two leaders have to go to this extent, it shows you that how threatened they feel uh, the system is. So I think there's a lot of uh, positive positives we can actually take from that. I think Muslims sitting here in the West, we've got to be part of the information battle. You've seen Britain now, what they're doing this week. You know, there's, a t there's tension. We've got to get involved. You generally see the West get involved in issues because they need to solve them. Really, we've got to expose you created Sudan. You've created the problem in its origin. You know, you've uh, created these artificial boundaries. You are not part of the solution. You're actually part of the problem. And really, we've got to be the voice of our ummah over there because they're the ones on the ground who are trying to like dodge the bullets and things like that. That's our role here. Our role is really to be part of the uh, uh, information battle. That is another uh, 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 arena uh, of the battle. And you do find that a lot of the propaganda war generally does take place online in the West. That's generally how it is. So, you, you know, we've seen this country is unstable. The West has to get involved to bring stability. The West has to provide a solution, which they did in the form of separating the south of uh, Sudan. That's really where we're going to be. Uh, and this is Islamic land. It's Muslim land. It was historically. We have our own solution. Uh, and our solution isn't just for Muslims, it's actually how to even <clears throat> unify and actually how to even integrate non-Muslims uh, under Islamic society as well. So I think a lot of positives we can take, although there's, you know, there's a lot of negative going on, really the regimes had to resort to this because the people are refusing to accept the status quo. So I think that's very, very positive. Uh, and I hope, inshallah, as uh, you have said and yourself, uh, that things don't get worse. But, you know, the, war, the world's powers are gathering around Sudan. It's an important country. Uh, there's a battle between the world's powers. They want it to go in a certain direction. Uh, and we as an Ummah, it's not about which side we're going to take. We need to really push our solution to the top of the agenda. Uh, and I think that's the, probably a good way to look at it, inshallah. So if I could in a few words. Um, hope I don't get in trouble for saying this. But I think it's reflecting the the sentiment of a lot of people in Sudan. Um, um, if Allah could take the uh, the souls of Hamati and Burhan soon, rather than later, um, a lot of people would be uh, relieved by that. How that happens doesn't matter. Um, people wishing that they could be taken to court for what they've done, what they didn't do for, but they didn't the protest, but. Um, they're still in power, and they could uh, they could finish each other off for a weekend. Um, but then we have to build a new political uh, culture. We have to, uh, and and it's already even started by by the Hezbollah Sudan, Hezbollah in Sudan. Uh, but our, our our reach and and um, and uh, and uh, if you like um, and material capability financially is obviously not matched. It's not, it's not. It's not. incomparable to the uh, to all these foreign-backed uh, political parties who get airtime and uh, and money from abroad. But it has to come from the grassroots. Here's where they started doing this. They started meeting from before. So there has been a few questions about Hizbut area in Sudan. So you're saying that they have been there on the grassroots, trying yes, to. Yes, but, but we have to view the Hizbut as someone who's putting forward. A solution. We're putting forward the model. We have a constitution. We've devised systems uh, and and detailed administrative setup of, of the state. So we are putting forward the solution. Yeah, and we're offering it to people. And we're meeting people of influence. We we are tribal we heads. 
people with tribal heads, journalists, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. even people in the people army. in the military as well. Yeah, as well, all of that. But the the point is, if there are more people indigenous in Sudan, we can start creating a a, a, a shift in the public opinion. More people putting forward solutions which are completely independent from foreign interference. This point I have to keep uh, like reiterating. It has to be completely out of the, the touch and the reach of foreign, not seeking any backing, not speaking to anyone from the outside. Ambassadors should only speak to states, not to political movements, okay? So when the when the public opinion now in Sudan is now one of the people from amongst themselves, from the grassroots level, are now all talking about the third way, then you have different groups and different, uh, even political parties, independent political parties, not connected to any foreign interference, or activists or, or imams, whoever, people, normal people on the street. And the conversation amongst ourselves is about this third way. And everyone is putting forward their their, their proposals. And obviously we can go detail them. We can't do that here, but because there's, there's, there's a lot of detailing going to how to run a state and what it does afterwards. But when that happens, you start, that's the beginning of the solution. That's the beginning. It has to be independent. Because we will eventually, this ummah is an ummah of khair. We will definitely get to an answer. We will definitely come to a, to a, to the the best idea we win when we actually put these ideas together. But that's how it has to be. Political life in Sudan is hostage to foreign interference. That's what the case is right now. Nothing's going to go forward until the conversation in Sudan and in other Muslim countries becomes like that. So we're putting forward our solution. We're trying our best to get it out to, to people. But other people do put theirs forward and work. I know it's tough. Honestly, it's actually tough when you don't have money like uh, like some of the political parties do. It's, it's actually tough. It's difficult. But it has to be done. It has to be done. And the public opinion can be more than this way. And we have a role, Muslims in the West, in terms of educating Muslims back home, not just Sudan, about the realities of what the Western system is like and that we need a third way. We need our own way. So I know I was going to say that this was uh, the last question, but there is an interesting question that I do want to ask as well to, uh, to yourself uh yourself if, if you are aware is how does the ulama of sudan react to the current situation um, or just generally have reacted in the last couple of years since omar bashir's protests etc no it's mixed it's mixed it's mixed honestly because um uh, the one the one thing like i said earlier about sudan's diversity and the um the fact that people are very tolerant of differences of opinion um, compared to other countries, very tolerant actually, is that you end up with a massive mix of, of there's no such thing as what is the opinion of the Ottoman Muslim, it doesn't exist. There's, you can find the opinions of the certain Islamic movements, you can get their opinions, um, particular movements, there's Muslim Brotherhood obviously, there's uh, there's Ansar Sunnah Salafis, there's there's obviously the Jabhat, the Islamic Front, the original uh, Turabis people and, and Bashir's people who had their, their split in the Harakat Islami between the National Congress and the Popular Congress, these two parties. Um, and there's others, and, th and there's many others. Obviously, we also, uh, and there's also Islamic, um, there's also committees, if you like, the Alma committees for the East of Sudan. There's obviously one which is center, which is like the, which has more authoritativeness in terms of like they're the ones who would announce Ramadan, for example, the the main one. But there's different committees like that. So uh, you'll find that there's a mix. People sided with the revolution. Some people did side with the revolution. Some people didn't. A lot didn't side with the revolution because they saw the 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 coming out of the the leftists. The, left, the leftists were back to, socialist the leftists, type. Yeah. socialists. 
uh, almost atheistic. And they were given, uh, because they, they would also had the, the airtime, they were given the airtime by the journalists and the, and the international media, and they looked like they were bigger than they actually were. And that was a reaction. Obviously, that, that created the resentment because people came out against Omar Bashir. Now they're seeing Islamic figures against people. So there was the, the, that occurred. So it's very difficult to say what is the opinion of the ulama. It's, it's, very, it's very diverse, very mixed. Some people, um, some people, they are ulama, but they've, they were, they, they've been um, benefiting from Omar um, Bashir's regime. That's is what that decided okay? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting, complex uh, situation that's uh, occurred within Sudan, but I think, alhamdulillah, I think the brothers here, Adnan, uh, Yusuf, you you provided light, clarity uh, to the subject area. Obviously, there's so much more that we can discuss uh, in terms of uh, this particular topic. And but just to remind, isn't it the audience uh, and also ourselves, is that look, having these discussions is the very, you know, is not the final step to the solution. But it's certainly a step within the solution of the overall solution that we're trying to look for. We need to have clarity, not just any amongst ourselves, but we need to build that within the ummah itself, yeah, to create this growing movement for change, to create this idea that we need to have, you know, an independent Islamic authority that's free of Western uh, colonialist influence. We need to have that conversation because we're not going to have that conversation now. When are we going to have that conversation? And yes, maybe in situations where there is dire need, there is difficulty for them to be able to have that mental space to have those thoughts and ideas. But then we have the responsibility to be that voice and that thinking. And I think as uh, Adnan mentioned, that information struggle, uh, to engage in that information struggle and provide the correct understanding and the correct narrative uh, from an Islamic viewpoint uh, to have. So I think, uh, you know, it's it's been... Certainly for me, it's been really, uh, you know, uh, really enlightening to understand this subject area because Sudan and the current politics and why the West was so interested in it, you know, it can be co quite confusing. So, Jazakallah khair to the brothers. I don't know if there's any final last words you want to say. No. <laughs> I have a lot anyway. <laughs> yeah. And inshallah, hopefully we'll have you back soon on the show. I'm sure you will come back soon on the show and maybe... Uh, Maybe we'll talk about Sudan uh, as an update in future. Uh, so, Jazakallah uh, khair. And Jazakallah khair for the audience, for everybody listening, watching. Please like the video. Please subscribe to the channel. Uh, and if you like the content, share the content as best as you possibly can. You know, this is really important, this type of content. It's unique content. Which other Muslim channel, YouTube channel, is talking about Sudan? Yeah, America talks about it. The Britain talks about it. The BBC or CNN are talking about it. But which are the Islamic channels or the YouTube channels from the Muslims who are talking about it? So this is a unique discussion that we're having today. And it's something that we need to try to share. And inshallah, we'll be having further unique discussions on this and other very topics as well. So jazakallah khair. Uh, and hopefully, inshallah, we'll see you soon on this new podcast called Liberating Minds Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Podcasts on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, and Sira are available at 
islampodcasts.com, as well as on iTunes. Rate, review, and comment, and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend about islampodcasts.com.